Welcome to What Changed, the podcast where we zoom out on the past to give a bigger, better picture, and then zoom back in again to show the tiny pixels that make that picture up. This happens several times until we all get vertigo. This is part two of Spirituality in Ancient Greece, where I outline a little of what made ancient Greece and its spiritual practices distinct against the otherwise incredibly hectic, messy, and largely edited backdrop of quote-unquote ancient times. So please, sit back, relax, and thank you for listening. This episode is a continuation of Spirituality in Ancient Greece because, like I said before, ancient Greece is actually like four or five different civilizations over a period of hundreds of years. To recap, in the last episode, we talked about the Cycladic, the Minoan, and the Mycenaean cultures that all came before what we know now as Classical Greece. There is one more historical period to cover before we get into that, and that is the Iron Ages of Greece. They've also been known as the Greek Dark Ages, but characterizing cultures by what they've lost instead of what they've innovated and offered humanity is reductive. And to be quite honest, not what this podcast stands for. I'm only reductive when a civilization is boring and hard to research. Sorry, Cycladic Greece, but honestly, marble dolls, that's it. At any rate, we'll be hopping into the episode with a brief breakdown of subject matter for the strength of cognitive continuity. We're going to talk about the different cults, like Hermeticism, the cult of Dionysus, and the Orphic cult. We're going to briefly talk about the overarching cultural myth that guided the way certain beliefs formed. We're going to engage fully with the possibility that the ancient Greek practices, religion, and spirituality itself were syncretic in nature. Syncretic means a union or attempted fusion of different religions, cultures, or philosophies. Side note, there is a lot of evidence that ancient Greece's beliefs were influenced by their neighbors in Africa, Turkey, and other places that were close to the Mediterranean. Ancient Greek philosophy, cultural markers, religion made its rounds around the area as well, and even into the roots of certain relatively newer religions. The final guideline is we are going to imagine the past as just as complex interpersonally as we are today. With these guidelines combined, we'll come to a better understanding of ancient culture and humanity at large. Or so help me, I'll wait a whole year before I release another one of these. Kidding. To start off, let's talk about the god Dionysus. His origins, his influence, and of course, his cult. Dionysus, for those of us who've read the critically acclaimed Percy Jackson and the Olympians, written by Rick Jordan, if you'll recall, Dionysus was very closely attributed to wine, fertility, and madness. This characterization comes from an ancient belief about the divine origins of the party animal of Olympus. There are a few variations on how he came to be born, but each myth of his birth goes like many others. Zeus was fooling around with mortal women and sired a divine heir. He does that all the time. His wife, and also sister, goddess of marriage and femininity, Hera, was always, and I mean always, looking to kill Zeus's quote-unquote bastard children. In the case of Dionysus, she succeeded. That is, until Zeus stepped in again and resurrected the darling boy. This myth occurs in a few different ways, and one of the ways the myth starts is with Zeus stepping out on Hera with Demeter, the harvest goddess. Dionysus was born from their tryst and disguised as a baby goat to hide from Hera's wrath until he grew up. Hera convinced the Titans to find, kill, and eat Dionysus. They took everything but his heart, and Zeus was able to save Dionysus by giving his heart to Semele, a princess who ate the heart and bore Dionysus in her own womb. Now, another variant is that Zeus was one day attracted to a mortal princess named Semele, 
They get along famously well. In fact, Zeus has a long-running affair with her, and because contraceptives were not uh, available, don't quote me on that, they might have had contraceptives, I have absolutely no idea, surely nothing that would be good enough to stop a god. Samel became pregnant with a little demigod boy. Hera found out about Zeus's infidelity and hatched a plan to make Zeus kill Samel himself. Hera is, and I cannot state this enough, incredibly petty. She disguises herself as an old woman, integrates into the household of Samel, and convinces her to ask Zeus to appear to her in his true godly form. Let's go ahead and clarify a few things here. A god's true form in Greek mythology is always too much for mortals to handle. It's the equivalent of being near a nuclear bomb as it goes off. Very lethal and very quick. So that's thing number one. And the second thing is that Hera could have just killed this woman. At any time. Let's go over what she's capable of for some perspective. Hera is the queen of Mount Olympus. She was one of the few members of the Pantheon who was worshipped by almost every Greek without regard to specialization. She is immortal and capable of influencing monsters, other gods and goddesses, and supernatural creatures to aid her in her plots. She is able to induce madness in people, and she is also able to transmute things, presumably anything she wants, into whatever she wants. She also has direct access to all the benefits of Olympus, and just generally speaking, was wealthy in ways that mortals could never be. So, to put it as clearly as possible, Hera, who could have just sent snakes to this woman's home, or driven her mad, or turned her into a goat, decided that the best way of getting her revenge against Zeus was to come up with a convoluted plot to make him kill her in the flashiest way possible. This is the one thing I wanted to make note of in regards to ancient Greek spirituality. The Olympians were not paragons of virtue or models of how to live the best life possible. The stories that inspired ancient Greek paganism were very grounded in human emotion and the dynamics of civilization. This included things like patriarchy, sexist stereotypes, classism, things that we would call out in our storytelling today. Examples of these problematic issues are woven deeply into the fabric of Greek myth. For instance, the coupling of Zeus and Hera being a prime example of the gross interaction between the feminine and the masculine present in Greek mythology. Hera initially refused Zeus's advances. She did not want to be married to him. That is, until he tricked her into taking him into her home by disguising himself as a bird and creating a thunderstorm and then sexually assaulting her when she, take home, when she took pity on the bird and took him into her home. In this myth, Hera was so ashamed she agreed to marry Zeus, just so that way she didn't feel as though she was, I guess, now lesser. To break away from the fictitiousness of the story for a second, what we would now consider a completely detestable action was simply a trait of the masculine at the time. Zeus was the divine patriarch, and domination of the feminine was a masculine trait, or at least as what we've seen in Greek mythology. Even then, I don't believe they considered a good thing or the right way to treat women, but female mortals and goddesses alike were sexually assaulted throughout Greek myth by male gods, not to mention just the general lack of consequences that most gods and goddesses would face for their transgressions. I'm not saying that all of Greek mythology is rape and tragedy. The, there are definitely a wide variety of stories that give a more detailed and nuanced picture of how ancient Greece thought of its own history. I did want to make it clear, however, that ancient Greek paganism often painted the gods as both divine rulers and deeply flawed individuals who were powerful because they were powerful, not because they chose to do the right thing. 
Not to mention that many of the myths about the birth of gods and demigod heroes began with Zeus being attracted to a woman and not caring about the concept of consent. His behavior does actually shame most of the pantheon, and there were attempts to punish him, but they were mostly unsuccessful. So back to Dionysus and the circumstances of his birth. Dionysus gained a reputation as a fertility god, the god of wine, and the god of madness. He was also seen as a harvest god who was heavily tied to the resurrection. His cult of followers were, in my opinion, some of the first witches. This is not necessarily true because there are some pretty clear differences, but they do carry around wands, uh, and they also do perform rituals. So his cult of followers um, were known as maenads, or mad women in Greek. They were known to carry thrists, which are wands of fennel stalks bound together with grapevines and ivy. And his cult was rumored to have super strength and to practice the ritual of tearing apart animals and also humans in honor of Dionysus. Uh, so a lot of Dionysus' influence comes from outside of Greece as well. So he was not necessarily um, found on the linear tablet A or B. Anyways, aside from Maenads, there were also people who believed that Dionysus' death and rebirth was what sparked the creation of mankind. The religion itself was known as Orphism and was in reference to the hero Orpheus, who returned from the underworld after attempting to save his beloved from death. Orphism, as a faith, focused on the divine spark they believed was bestowed upon humanity as a consequence of Dionysus' rebirth. So essentially, they believed that after, you know, he was torn apart and Zeus either pulled them all back together or, you know, stitched a part of his heart into his thigh to rebirth him or gave that heart to uh, his mother, Samuel, uh, and then she carried him and they birthed him. I, and there was a divine spark, right, from Zeus that re-formatted uh, and reborn, rejuvenated Dionysus. Um, so the myth of Orpheus, however, is an entirely different uh, story tonally. So the reason that Orphism is named Orphism is because Orpheus was a hero who had lost his beloved. Uh, she died too soon and he went back into uh, what is essentially a portal to the underworld to get her. So he goes through these trials, gets all the way uh, you know, down there, gets his beloved and is about to bring her all the way back out. Unfortunately, at the very end, he's unable to do so, and she is forever trapped in uh, the underworld. Uh, so Orphism was really more about the divine spark, but also the return from death. So they worshipped like Dionysus and Orpheus and other heroes who had gone to the underworld and come back. Kind of like Hercules as well. Part 2 of Ancient Greek Spirituality coming soon. I'm back. What's changed?